radio by students for students. You are why. How to Break a Radio Station, the podcast, is taken from a show broadcast live on URY. Therefore, whenever we ask you to message in via the website, you will not be able to do so. Please bear this in mind as you enjoy the show. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to this week's edition of How to Break a Radio Station. This is your show here on URY, which over the course of this term has taught you, the listener, how to break your very own radio station. I'm Harry, and once again, I'm joined by Jess and Alice. Hello. 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 Last week we were joined by Isaac and we had fun looking at the AM transmitter. Today we're going to be wrapping up some loose ends as there are plenty of things we are yet to cover, such as analog to digital conversion. But first, we're going to look at different types of cables and how they work. Yeah, so there's two types of cable, there's balanced and unbalanced. In an unbalanced connection, which tends to be the standard, the signal is simply passed along the wire. Electrical interference from many sources is picked up along the way and added to the signal. This noise cannot be easily removed at the receiving end, resulting in a noisy recording. In a balanced connection, the signal is sent twice. One wire carries the original signal, a second carries an inverted or negative copy of the signal. Interference along the cable is picked up equally by the two wires, resulting in two potentially noisy signals at the other end. In the receiving device, the negative signal is inverted again, which results in the original signal with an inverted copy of the interference added to it. This signal and the received positive signal are then averaged, which is summed and then divided by two, the result of which is that the noise components cancel, yielding the original noise-free signal. In practice, this method is extremely effective, effectively eliminating cable-induced interference. Balancing is most important on low-level signals where any interference is relatively larger compared to the audio signal. Yes, so I'm here to tell you about all the different kinds of cable that there are. Uh, the main one that you'll hear about is an XLR, um, and these are really standard on microphones and the inputs to mic preamps. They are balanced, so they have three pins, um, and the cables are said to be either male, i.e. they have the pin element, the protruding element, or female in that they have the inserted hole hole elements. Yes. Um, they they also appear on line level outputs of many pieces of equipment, such as mixers. Um, another one you'll have heard a lot about is a jack. Um, you can get balanced jacks that are TRS, which stands for tip ring sleeve. So there's a connection at the end of the cable um, and then a little black band and then a ring of metal and then another little black band and then the, the rest of the connector. Um, and they appear on mixers and processors and then there's unbalanced jack cables which are just TS or tip sleeve and they have one back black band and they are standard on electric guitars and basses and are common on keyboards and synth. Um, the design of these connectors means that they're genuinely, generally interchangeable, so an unbalanced cable will work with a balanced socket and vice versa, and if you used an unbalanced cable, the signal will be vulnerable to noise. Um, you might think, like, why do we even have unbalanced cables then? Well, guitars, basses, and keyboards do use them. Um, 
And if you used a balanced jack lead, you can actually, in some instances, just get no sound out of those things at all. They're more used out of convention these days than anything else. Um, and when you're using it for a guitar, the cable tends to be quite short and the signal le levels are line le level, so they're a bit higher than mic level. And so they work fine for the job. You are wise. Now, one of the remaining things that we have to touch on is analog to digital conversion. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that now. Audio that we hear is analog. Likewise, the signal sent to a speaker to produce sound is also analog. In its simplest form, an analog signal is a sine wave. It carries, it varies from a high limit, positive voltage, through a zero point and down to a low limit, negative voltage. This is pretty much like what alternating current electricity is like in your house. Now, this is where my uh, computer science knowledge might actually begin to be a bit useful here. Uh, computers, because they like to be awkward, do everything in digital signals, and that's in base 2, binary series and ones, off and on, call it what you will. Uh, if we want our computer to be able to understand our audio signal, we need to convert it from an analog to a digital signal. For example, while me or you don't understand what a sound of uh, 1001110 sounds like, uh, the computer does. This is why we need AD or analog digital converters. For example, my microphone right now is picking up my voice as an analog signal. For my computer to be able to understand this and send it across the internet, it must first be converted to a digital signal. Before sending the signal off to speakers, headphones, etc., the signal is converted back into an analog signal so that the audio equipment can't interpret it. They cannot understand the ones and zeros like the computer does. The first specification of an AC converter is the sample rate. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but it's essentially how accurate the digital signal represents the original sound. The other, rep uh, the other specification of an AC converter is bit depth. Bit depth refers to the number of bits within each sample of the analog audio and directly corresponds with its resolution. Examples include CDs which have a bit depth of 16 bits per sample and a Blu-ray disc which has up to 24 bits per sample. Almost all recorders these days, including phones, record at 24-bit. We often don't go higher, such as 32 or more, as this would be a waste of data, as well as being beyond the capabilities of other equipment in our audio chain. There are places, however, when working with 32 or even 64-bit audio are important. This is such as when processing digital signals. Variations in bit depth primarily affect the noise level from quantization error and the signal-to-noise ratio and dynamic range, i.e. how many times the loud, how many times louder the loudest sound can be compared to the softest, softest sound. Now, this is very useful as it ensures that the audio we want to hear is made louder, while background static, which we don't want, remains very quiet, almost inaudible in comparison. The rule of thumb is that each bit of increase in the sample, or bit depth, allows for six decibels of dynamic range. Since 3 decibels is roughly doubling the volume of the sound, a bit depth of 16 bits allows for a dynamic range of 96 decibels, or limiting the loudest sound to being no louder than 32 times as loud as the softest. While 32 times sounds like a lot, it all depends on what you're listening to. Hard rock has a dynamic range of about 2 decibels, since everything is played as loud as it will go. An orchestra, on the other hand, may have a dynamic range that's even greater than that, uh, around 96 decibels in a, in a typical concert. Bit depth also affects the bit rate and file size of the audio. 
It's only meaningful in reference to PCM digital signals, as non-PCM formats such as those with lossy compression do not have associated bit depths. There are two main differences that bit depth makes. The first is either dropping out the lowest volume sounds, or clipping the highest volume ones, thereby causing distortion. The second is in eliminating noise such as static, a higher bit depth allows for a better signal to noise ratio, getting rid of unwanted noise which is mostly static. A digital audio signal consists of a set of samples. Each one stores the value of a signal at an instant in time. The rate at which we take these samples is called the sample rate and it's measured in hertz. Sampling rates often vary from 6,000 to 192,000 times per second, with a common CD coming in at 44,100 Hz. If you consider that the human ear can hear notes up to 20,000 Hz, a CD is not only providing two samples for each waveform of that sound, which isn't a whole lot. Higher sampling rates help us not only to distinguish the difference in note, but in the tonal quality of that note, in other words, helping distinguish between a piccolo and a really high soprano singer. The main effect of this is the range of frequencies we can capture. The Nyquist theorem states that the maximum frequency we can capture is half of the sample rate. For example, sampling at 10,000 Hz can only accurately capture frequency uh, frequencies up to 5,000 Hz. The greater the sampling rate, the more accurately the digital signal represents the original analog sound. The only thing you really need to check is that you're playing back your audio at the correct rate when you're playing audio back. Can I just jump in here? Because I've been doing a lot of audio editing recently and um, just a few minutes ago, in fact, I um, <laughs> I added I added some recordings I'd made to my project um, that I was working on and I, I started playing them to like listen back to them like everybody talking on this sounds so low like their voices sound a bit like this like it's it's really unnatural um and i was like so panicked because like my face just went like oh, is there something i like completely messed up and when i recorded this or like what on earth has gone on and it turns out i just imported it um and not thought like whether the sample rate would be different so like the program that my editing program was working in one sample rate and the recording was in a different sample rate so I think I'd recorded it in 48 um, kilohertz which is very standard for audio but the program was actually working in 44.1 kilohertz so yeah I've made exactly the mm -hmm. same mistake before you are why welcome back to how to break a radio station uh, there is another couple of things we want to discuss well I say another I mean one um, noise so you may have heard us uh, scattering throughout um, the, the previous episodes little bits about uh, noise. But what actually is it? Um, the annoying thing about noise is that it's unpredictable. It's completely impossible to represent it with an equation, which is, of course, very stressful for engineers because we represent everything with incomprehensibly long and impossible to rem remember equations. <sighs> we can, however, characterize it in terms of a probability distribution, i.e. the probability that at a given time the noise is at a certain value. Um, now, in theory, noise can have any value. It could ha have infinite amplitude 
but it's highly unlikely that it ever will. Um, and there are different ways that we can represent this prob probability distribution. A uniform distribution could be used to represent noise, but it has equal probability of noise being any being any value in a specific range. Um, a better way to represent noise is with a Gaussian distribution, which looks a bit like a bell curve and it never crosses the x-axis. So it allows for this idea that you could have infinite um, amplitude, you could have zero amplitude, but you're like a million times, like one in a million chance of, of that error occurring. There's always going to be some noise and there's very likely going to be really loud noise but it's it's just going to be there um we can artificially create noise um using these mod, mod models and the interesting thing is that if you use the different models the noise um like a computer will generate sounds different uh there's lots of different types of noise with different names and following are all represented with the gaussian model uh so white noise is usually around minus 29 decibels but again Gaussian model could be infinite could be zero um, and it occurs at all frequencies um, within the audio range uh, so this is the noise you'll probably heard the most about um, and yeah there's other kinds of noises though pink noise uh, is where the average power of the noise decreases as frequency increases. So there's this inversely proportional relationship and that means that there's more noise present at lower frequencies. Whereas blue noise um, is proportional to frequency, so there is more noise present at higher frequencies. Um, and the reason that we call these two types of noise pink noise and blue noise is if you think of white noise as being white light white light is made of, of all frequencies um, so is white noise uh, pink noise is like red light where it's made up of lower frequencies and blue noise is like violet light where it's made up of higher frequencies there's another kind of noise you might have heard about. It's called brown noise, and this has nothing to do with colours. It happens to be named after a guy called Robert Brown, who was the guy who discovered Brownian motion, uh, which you may have heard of in physics. And it's similar to pink noise, um, but with even less high frequency content. It's the noise characteristic of a particle moving under Brownian motion. Noise sources are genuinely categorized into intrinsic and extrinsic sources. And intrinsic noise is generally white noise and it's impossible to remove. It can come from current flow in diodes and transistors, uh, thermal noise from electron motion and resistors, and something called 1 over F noise, which is a low frequency noise that comes from op amps. Extrinsic noise, on the other hand, tends to be more uh, what you would say coloured, um, and we can reduce it as it's created externally to circuits. So we can use shielding to protect the circuit from the electric or magnetic fields, or the crosstalk, or the mains hum, or the noise from power supplies that um, account for this noise. Also in this category is radiated noise, which I think is the most interesting because it's where the circuit acts as a radio antenna and picks up distant signals. 
Those are ways that noise can be introduced to analog equipment, but it can also be introduced digitally through quantization noise, which results from the process of analog to digital conversion. So analog to digital conversion can't fully accurately represent an analog waveform as only discrete values can be held as as um harry was saying i think earlier if the audio is three bit there's only eight possible values um and the difference between the digitized and the analog waveform um which you can think of as like the digitized is like um, waveform will look like you're going up um, a set of stairs it's really steppy and then the analog waveform is a smooth curve and the difference between that if you minus one from the other is called error and it creates noise however unlike conventional noise where it's unpredictable if you know what the waveform looks like it's completely predictable because you can do the calculation for yourself and work out what that error will be um a way to quantify noise on a signal is with signal noise ratio um, or SNR. So again, Harry was talking about this earlier, 8-bit audio has uh, a value of 98k or 50 decibels. So if you imagine noise being at the very edge of human hearing and then the signal in this case would sound at voice, like normal talking level, um, whereas 16-bit audio um, is at 98 decibels and that's kind of the difference between um, like the edge of human hearing and a lawnmower um, another fairly standard bit rate used is 24 bit um, which is which allows you to go up to 146 decibels which is so loud it could rupture your eardrum um, but that is the that is the bit rate used and it's not like people don't ever push things that loud because that would be dangerous and silly um, but it allows for that and it's it means you can have a much less noisy experience because a signal is overpowering it um, so much more You are wise Next week we on the show um, will have a series of interviews with some uh, current and past uh, URY engineers and we thought that this week um, it would be you might find it interesting for us three to tell you a little bit about how we got interested in sound engineering so over to you Harry uh, yeah so it'll come as a surprise to absolutely no one that in my free time as a child I was never interested in going and playing with other kids and all that normal stuff mainly because I'm not normal um, <laughs> for some bizarre <laughs> reason that I absolutely cannot remember for the life of me I decided to begin making radio shows in my bedroom in my spare time and put them all online. Of course, they all had completely legal music, and many of which I still have recordings of these, and I had a listen to them when I was preparing for this show, and I wanted to tear my ears off. Uh, then, in around 2014, one of my school friends, uh, James Cowan, invited me on his radio show. This is on a local community station called NE1FM here in Newcastle. And, you know, one thing led to another, and I ended up getting my own show in about mid-2015, after I've been to a couple of different people's shows and a couple of outside broadcasts as well. Now, about a year later, the head technical manager at the station ended up moving away. Coincidentally, uh, he moved to Yorkshire, and no one who was still around Newcastle really had any sort of clue how to do anything technical on the radio. So I ended up just teaching myself, uh, fixing and replacing things when they broke, 
setting up new equipment, all that good stuff. And by about March 2017, I ended up pretty much leading the technical operations at the station. So that's that's pretty much their equivalent of both our engineering and computing teams. Uh, from that, I also worked on our AV team at my school, Manual College. It's a school, even though it's called college. It's called college because don't ask. Everybody I tell it's called college. Uh, no, none of us have any idea. The teachers didn't have any idea. We asked them every week. Uh, it, it was just a meme, pretty much, by the end. Uh, as part of the AV team, we did audio and lighting for assemblies, productions, events, etc. Uh, coincidentally, I'm currently wearing my Emmanuel College Music and Drama Department proudly presents Les Miserables t-shirt, uh, advertising <laughs> for a show that was on last year. And another one of my particular favourite events uh, at the school was during the 2018 Performing Arts Talent Contest, where the school got a DDoS attack and we couldn't play the music for half the act. And the head of drama department asked us if we could just get some internet and then proceeded to tell us off when we tried taking our phones out to use our, our 4G hotspots because phones are banned, apparently. Uh, this all, anyway, helped me to expand my skills outside of just radio and I, I really, really enjoyed doing it. So, as you do, I decided I was going to stalk URY online for several months before coming to university <laughs> and then signed up pretty much straight away when I got here. Uh, but I do have to admit, in my mind, it is pretty mental that if 11-year-old me hadn't been sad enough to make some questionable online radio content uh, many years ago, then I, I quite simply would not be here today. So, uh, yeah, thanks past me. And we're going to go over to Jess. How did you get involved? Well, the reason I'm here right now uh, is completely because I'm lazy. Um, I, I had to do three months of volunteering for Bronze DV in year 10, and rather than, like, ask uh, charities locally that I didn't know anything about if I could go and help them. I just looked at what my dad was doing and he still does it, it actually. Um, it's a sound at my church in Birmingham. So I asked to join the team there and I got taught how to use an analog desk at first, but then we moved to an X32. Uh, so a lot of my experience has been built up with digital desks, specifically the Birmingham X32. Um, now there were a couple of team members that did various audio things professionally, but they are mostly people doing it because they enjoy it. Um, this is not a comment on the accessibility in the church, but it's a, it's a comment on society, but I was the only female, um, which, you know, happens a lot. Um, almost It almost made me want to do it more um, and sort of prove to society that, like, women can get involved in STEM too. I was also the youngest person by far until my brother um, pulled the same move, actually, and joined the team to complete his DME. <laughs> anyway, um, most people, including myself, knew how to operate the equipment, but not how any of it worked, and that sparked my interest because I really wanted to know how it all worked. Um, I also wanted a degree that would combine creativity with academia. So I went with electronic engineering with music technology systems, uh, which you might be surprised to know is only available in York. And radio really quickly came along as an opportunity to not only hone my practical engineering skills and have a lot of fun, but if you haven't already noticed, I love the sound of my own voice. And again, the combination of tech and creativity was really appealing to me. Alice. So I've been interested in sound engineering for as long as I can remember. I was actually trying to remember when like I first was getting into it and I genuinely can't remember. So this is great. Um, it combines what I'm semi good at, which is maths, physics and music. And I started getting involved in sound at secondary school by doing A -level, an A-level in music technology and getting involved with the school productions. 
I did the sound for Alice in Wonderland, which was very basic and just was just hit and play when I was supposed to. And then the following year, I did the sound for The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe, which was a bit more complicated as I had to make a lot of the sound effects myself and source all the music. Throughout my years at school, I also did a lot for uh, a lot of sound for concerts and talent shows. Um, I then managed to get involved with my local amateur theatre group. I did four plays with them, sourcing the music and finding or creating sound effects. Uh, for one of the shows, I spent maybe 20 hours looking for a sound effect of a woman dying of cyanide poisoning. True story. <laughs> my search history was a mess after that. <laughs> Um, and eventually I had to get that sound effects recorded by a friend. Um, I also helped the sound guy at the theatre with a few musicals. Um, I volunteered on the 2018 Christmas Panto as sound number two for 12 of the shows. And then after persistently spending time at the theatre and asking to help with various shows, I eventually applied for a job there as a casual technician and got it. Since having the job, I've done sound for a dance show and a professional play and I did lighting for 14 of the shows over the 2019 Christmas Panto. Um, at the end of A-Levels, I got into University of York to do electronic engineering with music technology systems and pretty quickly got involved with URI and became one of the assistant chief engineers along with Harry. And that brings you up to date on my career as a sound engineer. <laughs> Career, you've actually you've actually been paid to do it. Is the money? Like, what is yeah, money? I've not done much to be paid, but I was supposed to be doing some over Easter holidays, and then certain things Cur changed. And then the current world. events happened. Yeah. I can't think of anything that's happened for why we'd be in my bed. Why, why? No, we're not in my bedroom. I'm in my bedroom. <laughs> yeah. It'd be a bit weird if we were all in my bedroom. <laughs> we're all we're all self isolated together in Harry's house. <laughs> Yes, obviously. <laughs> cool. So yeah, thank you for listening to this week's episode. We do hope you enjoyed. Uh, we we hope you enjoyed and found it informative and entertaining. Do join us again next week, where we have some very exciting interviews with the UOI alumni engineers and about their experiences at UOI and in their workplace now. UOI.